0: Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 through 18 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 through 18. Seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. That's the title that we, a little over two years ago, decided to give to this sermon series that we're in. It's not a terribly original title, uh, but it captures the intent for which we decided to do this series. You see, at the time, a little over two years ago... Uh, Harbin's was going through a I think kind of a tough season a time of transition a season where our worship seemed sort of rote and joyless where our church life and and service to the body seemed ritualistic and routine and the solutions in our mind as Deemer and I at that time prayed about what needed to happen at Harbin's the solution in our minds was to fix our eyes on Christ to see him more fully and worship him more rightly. So we began a verse-by-verse chronological walk through the life of Jesus using all four of the Gospels. Two years later, and with a couple of detours, we find ourselves in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's been a great journey so far. I hope it has been for you as well as we've walked through the life of Christ. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that Jesus delivered to his disciples uh, there was certainly a crowd of other people listening in, but this sermon that Jesus um, delivers is for his followers, his disciples, for, for Christians. It's for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so this sermon is all about how kingdom citizens are to live, how we are to be different and to be distinguished from the world, how we are to be consecrated, set apart from the world. Now, up to this point, Jesus has shown us the, tra- the traits that distinguish ...who kingdom citizens are. We saw that in the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12 of chapter 5 in Matthew. And then he shows us the influence that kingdom citizens are to have upon the world. We're to be salt, we're to be light. That's in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5. And then in a pretty long section of the sermon, Jesus has been showing us the righteousness... ...or the right living, or the good deeds, or the law keeping, if you will, that distinguishes citizens of the kingdom... And that's in verses 17 through 48 of chapter 5. Now, he did that in that last section. He does that by, first of all, showing us that he himself is the fulfillment and the completion of all the Old Testament law. But he, by no means, was abolishing God's moral law. Matter of fact, Jesus proceeds to call his kingdom citizens, to call believers to a deeper level of law keeping. Verse 20 of chapter 5 says this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now to demonstrate that truth, the truth of verse 20, Jesus showed us six antitheses or six contrasts where the Old Testament text, where he gives us an Old Testament text that had either been misinterpreted or or misrepresented or misapplied by the Jewish leaders of the day. And he contrasts it with the true meaning of the law. And he does that by saying, you know, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And we see that happen six times in chapter 5. Now in the process, Jesus is actually raising the bar of what it means for kingdom citizens to keep God's law. External adherence to the law, to the rules and rituals was easy compared to Jesus' teaching that God's law must be kept inwardly from the heart. So far from just avoiding murder... Jesus calls on kingdom citizens not to hate or even be angry with our brother. Far from simply not sleeping with someone else who isn't our spouse, Jesus calls on kingdom citizens to not look at anyone with lustful intent and so on and so on. Now, this was the righteousness that Jesus was calling us to that exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees. A deeper obedience that flows out of a heart that's been made new. A heart that now desires to keep God's law And a heart, frankly, that's been enabled to keep God's law. So this new ethic of Jesus's, it soars and it soars and it soars throughout chapter 5. And it reaches a pinnacle in verse 48 that we focused on last week. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This perfection is the the, chapter 5 verse 20 righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is a divine righteousness that he causes to happen in and through us. And it must happen. For the Bible teaches us very clearly, without holiness, no one will see God. So true Christians, true kingdom citizens are striving toward, are working toward, are progressing toward holiness. We we have been made holy, yet we are still becoming holy. And we will one day be fully holy, be sanctified once we are in the presence of Christ. And we are only doing this, we are only... Progressing toward holiness because he is at work in us doing an inevitable work of progressive sanctification, making his bride pure. Making the church pure for his son. So that brings us to today's text where Jesus will now talk about what that exceeding righteousness looks like practically. Verse 6, especially the first 18 verses, is all about application, I mean, as, I'm, as I was preparing the, the passage, any good preacher is supposed to give you points of application. And you, almost, you don't have to with verses 1 through 18. It's all application. So Jesus is, is, is talking about what this, this, pra- this righteousness, this exceeding righteousness, looks like practically. We move from a doctrinal discussion of righteousness to a practical one. Jesus has, been, has corrected the bad teaching prevalent in his day and will now correct that bad practice that was also prevalent in his day. So that's where we come to Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. So I want you to stand now as we get ready to read this this passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. And this is the Word of God. That's why we stand in the honor of the reading of it. This is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness... And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you... They have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we come to this text, this very practical text that your Son Jesus gave us, those of us who are believers here, we are the audience for this sermon. So, Father, I pray that, first of all, you would keep us from being tempted to think that Jesus is talking about hypocrites outside the church. He is talking about those inside the church. So, Father, help us to see this word is for us. So, open up our ears to hear. Open up my mouth to speak. Lord, I pray that your word would function, as you say it does in Hebrews, as a double-edged sword this morning. Penetrating to the depths of our soul. To expose any hypocrisy that we may be bringing into the building this morning. So God, we ask that you would do this work in us. We thank you for your word. I pray now that you would bless it as I preach it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, I'm going to put a, um, an image on the screen here. And I want the kids to tell me what kind of bird this is. What? A peacock. Okay, that is a, a peacock. Have any of you ever seen a peacock? Right? They're beautiful, aren't they? I actually have a, um, a peacock feather here. And uh, it's a beautiful feather. And this is part of the, the tail feathers of a peacock. Now you see there in the picture, the peacock will shoot these tail feathers up. Uh, now, the purpose of that is to attract a mate, okay? So he wants to look sharp, so he puts the tail feathers up, and, uh, and he's beautiful with those tail feathers. Now, let me ask you a question, though. What is the purpose and design of feathers? Hey, okay, obviously, it does help Mr. Peacock here attract a, a young lady peacock. But what are the, what's the purpose of feathers, Okay, they 're they're, they're ingeniously designed, not evolved they 're ingeniously designed to help birds fly they're very lightweight um, it's part it 's the essential part, besides birds just having wings, feathers are an essential part of, of of how God has created them to help them fly. Let me ask you a question about a peacock. Do peacocks fly? No, peacocks are a flightless bird, okay His feathers. All right, only thing they function is to draw attention to himself. That's the sole function of the peacock's feathers. Beyond that, they don't get him anywhere. Well, they may get him somewhere, but they don't get him flying anywhere. Okay? The peacock's feathers don't serve the purpose of helping him fly through the air. Now, I'm using that as an illustration this morning as I think about this this passage of Scripture because... I think a lot of people come into the body of Christ and into the church and they act like peacocks. They spread their feathers for everyone to see their holiness and to see their acts of righteousness and to see their good deeds. When in reality, those good deeds are empty. They accomplish nothing. All they do is draw attention to themselves. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage of Scripture today. That there is a great temptation... For those who are in the body of Christ to give in to hypocrisy. Verse one of this passage of scripture, the very first word Jesus says is beware. Beware. Watch out. Be on your guard. Like a sign on a fence warning us that there's a vicious dog on the other side. We need to heed Jesus' words. All of us need to see the warning sign at the beginning. ...of chapter 6. Every single one of us need to see the beware. What's he warning us against? Well, remember the previous verse and there weren't the chapter divisions in, 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 in the New Testament. Those are given to us later to help us navigate our Bibles. So the preceding verse, we need to think about that. the thought process just continuing... Verse 48 says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And upon saying this, Jesus then says, watch out. Beware. Be careful. Why? Here's why. Because where there is a great focus on holiness, there will always be a great temptation to hypocrisy. Where there is a great focus on holiness, there will always be... A great temptation to hypocrisy. When men and women are called to holy living, they are inevitably tempted to fake that living. And so Jesus knows that. He knows our sinful nature. He knows how we're going to hear his words and then try to put on a show. Jesus knew we'd hear his call to holiness and then try to do it in our own strength and fake it. So he says, beware of how you practice the righteousness you are called to. Beware. So, in verse one, Jesus is laying down in this first section here, verse one, is kind of an introductory section of this whole passage. Jesus is laying down the main principle that he's communicating namely, that our acts of piety or acts of righteousness, or, or um, if we want to call them good deeds, we can call it that. That's how I, I worded it in the kids' notes that these acts of righteousness must be properly motivated and properly aimed. Matthew 6, 1, when he says, beware, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Okay, that's the motive. To be seen by them. For then you will have, and this is the aim, no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So these verses that follow, verses 2 through 18, consist of this principle in verse 1 being fleshed out. So now before we get into those verses, you might be wondering, if you've been listening to the Sermon on the Mount, didn't Jesus just say way back in chapter 5, verse 16, didn't he just say this? That we are to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And yet here he's telling us to to practice our righteousness, not to practice our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So, So what is it? Are we to do good deeds and acts of righteousness before other people or not? And are we to be seen by them or not? Well, it all has to do with what I just said. Our motive and our aim. Jesus is in no way saying that we are not to be righteous publicly. He's not saying that we are, we are not to worship corporately. What he is saying is that we are not to do any act of piety hypocritically. You see, in verse 16 of chapter 5 the motive and the aim of our actions is God's glory, right? But the hypocrites in today's passage make the motive and aim of our actions our glory. Furthermore, in chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus has just spoken about persecution. So he's urging us not to fear man's anger and be willing to act openly for the Father's glory, but here, Jesus is urging us not to love men's applause and be tempted to act for our glory. As one commentator put it, we are to show when tempted to hide, and we are to hide when tempted to show our righteousness. With that, let us take, an exa- t- take a look at these three. There's three examples here that Jesus gives us regarding piety or acts of righteousness. They're giving, prayer, and fasting. And these were and still are the core practices of Jewish piety, now, by piety, again, I simply mean our religious practice, our good deeds, or our acts of righteousness. Now, the three examples here are arranged into three sections that follow the exact same structure and the exact same wording. The section on giving is verses 2 through 4. The section on praying is, is verses 5 through 6. And then the section on fasting are verses 16 through 18. Now, verses 7 through 15 are an extrapolation or an extension, if you will or an extended application of what Jesus is teaching us regarding prayer. So that that in that extension section there is the, is the famous Lord's Prayer that we're very familiar with. Now, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to approach this. Today I'm simply going to focus on those three sections, verses 2 through 4, verses 5 through 6, and verses 16 through 18. Next week we'll go back and we'll look at that that extrapolation, that extra teaching Jesus gives us on prayer. Matter of fact, We'll do that for the next six weeks. We're going to take a long time to look at the Lord's Prayer. And that will take me right up to the date that I'll be going on sabbatical. So we'll finish through the Lord's Prayer through the end of chapter eight, verse 18 of chapter 6 um, before we press the pause button on this series. But as for today, let us notice some things from this text. Here's the first thing. I want us to observe the expectation that Jesus has regarding our acts of righteousness. It's not if we are to do them, but when. Notice the expectation that Jesus has regarding our acts of righteousness. He says this, thus when you give to the needy, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, these acts of righteousness that Jesus is talking about are not optional. He's not saying if you want to do this, if you prefer... He's saying, when you do these things, we need to get this. Christians are called to practical acts of righteousness. We simply are. In other words, we are called to religious acts. Now, let me ask you a question. Is religion bad? How would you answer that question? Is religion bad? What do I mean by it, right? Okay? Okay. Now, I think most of the times in our church culture here in America, we hear someone say, is religion bad? And immediately we think, yeah, yeah, religion is bad. Well, certainly religion can be bad. The word religion simply means a system of actions and beliefs one directs towards a deity. Of course, there's many false religions in the world. I would dare say that everyone is religious because everyone worships something. And so even the atheist has a system of actions and beliefs that he has directed towards himself. So acts of religion can be bad. In Christian circles, we often say, I don't have religion, I have what? A relationship. That's a a great Christian cliche. But like most silly cliches of our pop Christian subculture, it has half truth and also half false in it. I'm amazed that many American Christians have more of these cliches memorized than Scripture. Scripture. I don't have religion, I have a relationship. Now, certainly our faith is founded on a relationship with God through Christ. We see that all throughout the Sermon on the Mount here. For only those who have a relationship with Christ, only kingdom citizens, have the inward reality of a new nature that equips and enables them to follow Christ and give glory to the Father. And Jesus clearly teaches us that religious acts in and of themselves cannot earn right standing with God. So that type of religion is false. But we also must be careful not to just jettison the idea of religion so quickly. The word itself is neutral, and we are called to religious acts. We are called to do things for the Lord. There was a viral video that came out a few years ago called, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. Did anybody see that? Some some guy out in Seattle made this video. Now, there was some truth in it, just, just like this little cliche here, but there were some things that weren't so good about it as well. There were some things that were really just sort of misguided. One of the lines in this little, kind of a, what is it? It's like a a rap or whatever one of the lines in this video he says Jesus came to abolish religion where does the scripture say that that Jesus came to abolish religion really because if i read this text correctly i see Jesus actually commanding religious acts if i'm reading this text correctly he's saying that we should be doing religious things we should be praying we should be fasting we should be giving Jesus expects his followers to be religious, to have righteous acts that flow out of a new heart. Verse 2 says, When you give to the needy. Verse 3 says, When you give to the needy. Verse 5 says, When you pray. Verse 6 says, When you pray. Verse 7 says, um, I mean, Yeah, verse 7 says, When you pray. So we got that three times. Verse 16 says, When you fast. Verse 17 says, When you fast. Surely we get Jesus' point by that time that these things are expected. This isn't if you or in case you or perhaps you will, but when you, when you do these things, we do acts of righteousness because of our relationship. So, so it's not that I don't have religion, I have a relationship. I have true religion because I have a relationship. Someone make that bumper sticker, please. Let's get our cliches fixed. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Not if you love me, you don't have to do nothing. You just hang out and be settled in the fact that you love me. And start loving other people too. If you love me, I've got some words to you. I have some commands. I have some expectations. Do them. If you have a relationship, you will have religious acts. You will have religion. Acts of righteousness. James himself says religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So if Jesus came to abolish religion, what on earth is James talking about? I think our Mr. Viral Video dude got it wrong. Because we order our lives along cliches instead of the word of God. No wonder our churches are in such a mess. Because we live on cliches that are easy to say, easy to remember, and they don't hurt anybody's feelings. When we should be going to the word of God and say, what do you expect from me, Jesus? Religion that is pure and undefiled? Okay. It involves doing something. Acts of righteousness, friends, is part of our ongoing sanctification that's happening in us. We are becoming holy. We are becoming perfected as Jesus called us to in chapter 5, verse 48. In those we do do the good deeds we were created to do. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 4, verse 24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So when Jesus says, when you, that means he expects us to be who we were created to be, really who we were recreated to be. We are new creatures. And we were created to carry out acts of righteousness that flow out of a true heart. Therefore, we, they should be pure acts. And they should not be two-faced. And so Jesus goes on. Our next observation is simply this. Observe the motivation that Jesus says should drive our acts of righteousness. Not to be seen by men, but to be seen by God. Observe the motivation that Jesus says should guide our acts of righteousness. Verse 2. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Jumping down to verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And then jumping down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Jesus warns that being seen by man cannot be our motivation. Why? Because our good deeds are empty and they are a farce if they're aimed at men's eyes. When our audience is men and women, then our acts of righteousness become an act. And our performance of good deeds becomes a performance. We become thespians. We become actors in our own star- leading roles in our own B-grade movie. That's what the word hypocrite means, by the way. Jesus uses it three times. Verse 2, verse 5, verse 16. Hypocrite was used in classical Greek to refer to an actor in a play. Okay, it it, it was literally, uh, the word literally meant someone who wears the mask. In old Greek plays, you've probably seen this, the actors would hold up a mask as they acted out the play. So if they were happy, they'd put up a happy mask. If they were sad, they'd put on the, the sad mask. And the the whole idea was that the, the actor was laying aside his true identity and assuming another one for the purpose of entertaining an audience. He was laying aside who he truly was and putting on a different identity to impress a group of people who were watching him. Jesus says that many acts of righteousness are just like that. Someone putting on a mask of piety to entertain an onlooking world. Now let me remind you who Jesus is talking to here as I already have this morning. He is talking to Christians. He is talking to kingdom citizens. Jesus knows how tempting this is going to be. Not necessarily for unbelievers but for us. Non-believers can only do good deeds for themselves. <laughs> they can't do them for the glory of God anyway. So Jesus is speaking to Christians here. We must be different. Now what is the most common complaint leveled against the church? The church is full of Hypocrites, right? The church is full of hypocrites. Sometimes that's an unfair assessment for those who level that claim are usually hypocrites themselves and just looking for an excuse to hate the church. But in many ways, it's a very true assessment. Far too many of those who claim to be Christ's followers are simply putting on a show from week to week. We give into it when our religion or our acts of righteousness become an ostentatious, a self-focused show Matthew 6, 2, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. So here Jesus is warning us against those who sound a trumpet before they give to the needy. Now some scholars believe this refers to a a trumpet-shaped reciprocal device, some sort of device that received the offering in, in in the temple. And so it would make noise. It was made out of metal. It was like a trumpet. It would make noise as you drop the money in. So someone trying to gain attention might drop a lot of money, bang, or throw the coin really hard. For themselves, who knows? Other scholars believe this actually, There were actually times when, out in public, a trumpet would be sounded when it was time to give alms to the needy. So that way, the needy would know the money's being given out, and the rich would know to show up and give out some money. But really, neither one of those two ideas have a whole lot of evidence uh, outside of the scriptures. Uh, it may be that Jesus is simply using a humus exaggeration here, like we would say, "Don't toot your own horn." Regardless, the point is clear: don't make a show of your religion. Don't turn your good deeds into a production. Don't call a press conference for yourself. Verse five the hypocrites love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Again, this is is, is not invalidating public prayer or congregational prayer or praying with others publicly is a warning against making our prayer a show and that can happen in a congregational gathering but that can happen when you're just praying with other people that can even happen when you're praying by yourself we make our prayers a show you see the Jews like the Muslims today had three well the Muslims have more but the Jews had three set times in a day when they would pray we see this in Daniel chapter 6 and and some people very much unlike Daniel would strategically time their walk down the street for the time of prayer to happen while they're out in public. All right, it's about prayer time. I need to go outside. So I walk in and then the prayer time comes and now they can fall on their knees and, and begin to worship on the street corner there where everybody can see them. Or they would be the first to, 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 to want to be uh, called upon to stand up and to bring a prayer during the, at the synagogue. And then when it came to fasting, Jesus said, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they, they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. The word disfigure literally means to make something disappear or waste away. Some practitioners in Jesus' day would actually darken their faces with ashes and make themselves look gloomier and make their, make their features look more sunken in. They wanted to look like they were wasting away and they wanted everyone to know it. These are just three examples of showy, ostentatious religion. But it can go way beyond, as I think we all know, the, simply these three acts of piety. Certainly there are many ways today that we seek vain glory. We want to be glory grabbers. I think our social media fascination, our social media fascination just feeds this, doesn't it? I mean, we want to have lots of likes. We want to have lots of followers. We want to have retweets. We want to have, I don't know, views and shares and whatever else it is. We want to put up an article or a comment or our own cliche and have people go, oh, that's amazing. Oh, that's wonderful. You're just so insightful. We love it. We eat it up. You know, another email post, bloop. You know, someone liked your comment. All right. Someone liked my comment. Because we're fools that love attention from the world. And then we even practice Facebook piety or, or hashtag Piety. Save the children. Oh, oh, he really cares for the hurting children around the world. Oh, what a great guy. Well, I'm sitting there eating Cheetos in front of my computer. Foolishness. That's the world we live in today. It feeds the, the idol of self. Everyone, look at me. Look at me. I'm not, not actually out doing evangelism, but I sure do. Hashtag Jesus saves. That's the world we live in. Or we're tempted to participate in the latest spiritual fad that, that makes us feel spiritual and look spiritual to everyone else. And so someone starts doing something else, it, it, it gains ground in the Christian community. Oh, well, you got to do this to be spiritual now. Okay, It's a certain diet or a certain, certain food, a certain book you got to read. And even great things, good things like, like schooling your children at home or good things like adoption even can become fads. I worry how many people that actually have the means to do it have actually adopted simply because it's a fad. Oh, adoption is really cool these days. Not only after I hashtag about it, I'm going to go do it. But you're still doing it for the wrong reasons. You're doing it because we want to be made much of. Everyone else is doing it. We also talk about ourselves a lot, how God is at work in our life, instead of genuinely desiring to know how God is at work within others in the body. We may lift up our hands in worship, not to worship an almighty God as a helpless child worshiping his father, but we may lift up our hands so that, well, the people behind me can see my hand up in the air and how how holy I am. We say spiritual things like, I'll pray for you. And never, ever pray for the person. Why? Because we sound so spiritual to say, I'll pray for you. If we were honest, we'd say, you know, I'm going to forget everything you told me in about five minutes, but, you know, I hope things work out. If we're going to pray for someone, pray for them. Don't put on this spiritual show. If you're not going to pray for me and the situation that's going on in my life, and you come and say, hey, I'll be praying for you. All right, if you're not going to pray for me, don't say that, please. I'd rather know who you really are. Instead of you sounding a trumpet about how holy you are. And I say that for myself as well. There's a thousand different ways we seek approval, we seek attention, we act like hypocrites. I'm not, and I'm not saying that any of these things I've just mentioned, well maybe the hashtag and all the Facebook stuff. But no, most of these things are not necessarily bad things. I'm not saying that, that we're not to do any of these things. Any more than Jesus is saying you shouldn't pray, fast, or give. It's not that we shouldn't do these things. We should do things. We should pray for people. We should be doing these things. But when we do them, we cannot be an actor acting out a religious performance. Jesus doesn't want any of that. So we must ask ourselves the question, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I giving this money? Why am I pursuing this? Why am I sacrificing this? Why? Why do I want to? Why do I want to go out and do evangelism? Why do I want to go overseas? Why do I want to go meet my neighbor? Why do do I want them to see that I'm a great religious guy? Why, Why am I doing these things? We need to ask ourselves that question with everything that we're doing, because I don't think we realize how easy it is to slip into this hypocrisy. Beyond asking why, we need to ask who. Who is this for? Who is my audience? And who is getting the glory? There's only one set of eyes that we should be aiming for, gods. We are to be secret service agents, if you will. A good secret service agent isn't seen as he protects the president. That little squirrely thing in the ear kind of gives them away. But other than that, they shouldn't be seen. They're kind of blended. They're not going to make much of themselves. Hey, I'm the bodyguard. Come on, look at me. So the sniper can then point the other direction we got to be careful. Verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Not only, not only are we to do this in secret from others, not to be seen by them, but this text says you actually to keep it a secret from yourself. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now what does that mean? Now Jesus' words here probably humorously show us how self-deceptive we can be with our own acts of righteousness. Like the Pharisee in the parable in Luke chapter 18, who prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I think Jesus says this about not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, because we can so easily impress ourselves. We can so easily impress ourselves. So, we need to be careful to look after our inner motives and make sure we aren't even trying to impress ourselves. We aren't trying to make much of ourselves to ourselves. Pride can be hidden in someone who outwardly looks humble. Let me say that again pride can be hidden in someone who outwardly looks humble, it can happen very, very easily. We have to be on our guard. We have to be careful. So to put, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing in our vernacular today. Maybe we'd say something like, when you give, don't pat yourself on the back. Don't pat yourself on the back. Don't be so impressed with yourself that you're giving really makes you feel great. Maybe you're not making a show of it, but you walk home thinking, wow, I'm such a great guy. Don't do that. Verse 6, when you pray, go into your inner room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. The word room here is sometimes translated in our English Bibles as inner room or closet. The word actually denotes an inner storeroom in 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 a traditional Jewish house. It was one of the few rooms that could be locked. So you get the idea here. Be secret. Be very secret. Go to the inner room. And again, this is not saying we can't pray in public, is saying that we need to be so on our guard against hypocrisy, so beware of our tendency to do good deeds in order to be seen, that we're willing to lock ourselves away, if need be, to keep from trying to make much of ourselves. Hide away in the innermost room and lock the door if you need to, so that you won't be praying to impress people. Sometimes the person putting on the show isn't fooling anyone but themselves. I think we've all been heard people pray and in ways that they try to elevate their rhetoric so high to some sort of lofty place, it feels like they're, they're reciting Hamlet to an audience. They don't talk like that. We're all guilty of this, and pastors as well, myself as well. Now pastors have a tendency to do this, and I know I've done this, so I ask your forgiveness now. Sometimes they didn't get enough in on their sermon, so they take the prayer time to preach a little more, right? They're not talking to God. They're not talking to the Father. They're just continuing the sermon. And they're going off and off. And I found myself doing that at times. I'm sitting here closing in prayer. And I'm like, I'm not really talking to the Lord here. I'm just trying to get in a few more things. That's a huge temptation for pastors. And that's sinful. That's not how we are to pray. Humble brokenness should mark our prayers before the Lord. Not some sort of attempt to impress others then we become a hypocrite. We might as well just be acting out of play. Instead, we should have prayer that flows out of a heart that's in love with God and not in love with ourselves. And we'll talk more about prayer next week as we get into the, into the Lord's Prayer. Verse 17 says, When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. Anoint your head. Now, some people believe that Jesus is simply here teaching that we need to take proper steps of, of good hygiene and thus not draw attention to ourselves. But but usually anointing one's head with oil was symbolic, symbolic of gladness, of joy. So I think it means that instead of putting on gloom, put on joy. Get cleaned up and get happy. So you should give like you're giving to God alone. You should pray like you're praying to God alone. And you should be fasting like you're feasting with God alone. That's what we're called to. That's the true acts of righteousness that we're called to. The true Christian must not live for the adulation and the the attention from the lips of other sinners, but must live for these words and these words alone. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That alone should satisfy us. So that leads me to my next observation this morning. Observe the aspiration or the aim. I used the word aim earlier. The aspiration that Jesus says should mark our acts of righteousness. Here it is. Not to receive the temporal excitement of men's applause, but to receive the eternal joy of God's approval. Acting in a play is a lot of fun. Uh, I had the chance when I was in high school to act in a play. I was in Oklahoma. How many of y'all have seen Oklahoma? Okay. I was cowboy number four. Okay. And I'm in Oklahoma. I had one line. I can't remember what it was. That's pretty bad. Something about Jed, you know, the bad guy. Um, and so Judd, so Jud, Judd or Jed, whoever, anyway, obviously I wasn't really uh, into the play, but I was in Oklahoma, and it was a lot of fun. It was, it was a lot of fun to perform in a play. I mean, just all the, all the practices and being there with the other people, and then when the performance comes around, it's a blast. And you know, there would be things sometimes that would mess up in the play, and there had to be a little ad-libbing or whatever, and those are great memories, and that was a whole lot of fun. But it's only fun for a short while. It isn't real. Eventually the play ends, the stage lights dim, the applause fades, the program with your name on it gets thrown away. So too, hypocritical religion does generate temporal rewards, but they are fading rewards. Again, verse 2 of chapter 6, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. And Jesus says this two more times in verse 5. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. And then in verse 16 regarding fasting. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. Hypocrites are praised and they are rewarded and they love the reward. John chapter 12, verse 43, Jesus says they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from the Father. Actors get temporal glory, but that's all it is. The reward that they're going to get fades away. Now this verb here, they have received, it was actually an accounting term. It was a verb that meant to receive payment in full. So the hypocrites have received their full payment. You got all your reward. There's nothing left. That's why the verse one talks about you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Nothing. So so you go after the world's glory. You go after vainglory. Guess what? You will get your payment in full. And there'll be no reward left over for that act of righteousness that you did for the attention of others. Full payment, meaning there's nothing else. This glory, this, this reward that we get from doing our deeds to be seen by man is fleeting. The applause eventually dies. And we're left with no further further reward. Now, for some true Christians who fall into periods of hypocritical religion, and frankly, we all do, what we are doing, we are squandering the rewards we are to get for those acts of righteousness. We are squandering them. We are doing what the what Paul warns the, the Corinthian church about in 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 12, Paul's been speaking about the good deeds that we are supposed to be doing to build up the body. He says this, Now if anyone builds on the foundation, and the foundation is Jesus Christ, by the way, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that one has built on the foundation, survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Some Christians, true believers, are squandering away their reward by seeking the wood, hay, and straw of worldly attention and worldly applause. So now the question goes beyond why are we doing this, And who are you doing this for? But what are you hoping to gain? What are you hoping to gain? Earthly rewards that fade or the heavenly rewards of our Father? Each one of these three sections ends with this phrase. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He will reward you. Your goal, your aim, your aspiration is not to get earthly rewards but heavenly ones. Ultimately, all of our righteous deeds, if they are true, they are for him. Truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. That's what Jesus said. And if they are for him, we seek the reward that can only come from him. They are for him and the reward we get comes from him. Now, some people struggle with the idea of rewards Some people think we should serve God not to get any rewards. People say that it's just another form of selfishness, that we should serve God simply out of duty, simply because that's the right thing to do. If you want to believe that, that's okay. But your service to God is going to be joyless and dry, and you'll get burnt out. But your service to God is going to be fueled if you understand a proper vision of what rewards await a true believer. There's not enough fuel in duty to sustain you to the end. You need better fuel. You need delight. You need to delight in serving God because of the reward that comes from serving God. Jesus loves reward language. It's all throughout the scriptures. The epistles as well. We just read Paul speak of it. If you're struggling with the idea of reward, it's probably because you have a very puny understanding of what the reward is we're going to get for serving God. Don't imagine your reward is just a better version of earthly stuff. That's not your reward. That's silly. The reward God gives to his faithful ones is himself. The Christian looks to unhindered fellowship and worship and service to his master. Jesus says in the parable of the talents, enter into the joy of your master. That's the reward. We look to having unhindered fellowship and worship and service to our master. That's what we're working toward. If you just think heavenly rewards are, I'm actually going to have a car made of gold on a street of gold, you're a fool. You've got to realize your reward is to be with your father for all eternity basking in his glory and in his holiness and learning from him for all eternity. My friends, do you ever have that moment when you're listening to a sermon or you're reading the scriptures on your own and you just feel this great, almost rapturous joy overcome you as you're learning about God? And you're just sitting there going, oh, this is so good. Taste and see that he's good and you're enjoying it. Friends, imagine that time's infinity for eternity. That's what you're going to get. Why on earth would you seek the applause of man when you could have the presence of the Father? The Christian looks towards this. Colossians three twenty three says, Whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. And what is our inheritance? We read about that in Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 4 earlier. It's the all satisfying joy of knowing Him and being with Him forever as new creatures in a new heavens and a new earth. He is our God and we are His people. So we do acts of righteousness for Him to receive the reward of Him. So let us desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God will not be ashamed to be called our God, for He has prepared for us a city. Don't be afraid of seeking the heavenly rewards. Don't be afraid of seeking a better country. Don't be afraid of seeking a heavenly city. Only make sure you know what the rewards actually are. Conclusion to this sermon, guys, is simply this. Christians, beware. Beware of falling into an act. You may fool others, but you won't fool God For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Don't act like a peacock. Instead, live like the Apostle Paul. Galatians 1 verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So that's simply the application for us believers. Beware. Beware. Let's examine ourselves. Let's examine what we're doing. And for unbelievers here this morning, the application is the same it is every week. Repent. Your good deeds are nothing more than filthy rags. They are useless peacock feathers. They can do nothing for you. They earn you the praise before men, but they earn you nothing before God. You are not doing good deeds that flow out of a relationship with God. Instead, you are doing them to earn favor with God, to impress him. Friends, he is not impressed with your feathers. You are simply seeking your own glory. And Jesus says this in John 5, 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Stop seeking your own glory. Stop trying to win your way into heaven. Stop seeking to justify yourself. Instead, come to Jesus empty-handed, poor in spirit, turn from your sin and believe the good news. The good news that Jesus died for sinners. He took God's wrath on our behalf and he gave sinners his own righteousness because he carried out every act of righteousness perfectly on our behalf. So come to him. He stands ready to forgive you, and he will make you into a new man or a new woman out of whom will flow rivers of living water, ready to produce sincere and God-glorifying acts of righteousness. So sinner, come. Believer, beware. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you right now, and we close this time of the preaching, and we get ready to go into a time of singing a, a song here to you, Lord, and having a time of response, Lord, I, I just am reminded, as we think right now i 'm sure all of us Lord, are can, can have things come to our mind that that can become acts that we do instead of true sincere worship, so Lord, as we close the service and we sing, Lord, may we sing for an audience of one, may we sing for you, Lord, as we come here and we We give and people walk forward, which is a public act, to put money in the offering or to put a prayer request. Lord, if there be any motive in any of us that's to draw attention to ourselves, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would keep us in our seat. Let's come up and put that offering in quietly later if we're in any way tempted to draw attention to ourselves. So Father, I just pray that you would Do a work in us that we might see this warning sign and understand that because you, Father, through these words of your Son, Jesus, because you, Jesus, have called us to righteousness, and because we're still struggling with indwelling sin, we sometimes hear your call to righteousness and immediately begin to act like hypocrites. So protect us from that. Do a work in us to make us the men and women the children, the boys and girls that you want us to be, new creatures doing righteous acts that flow out of new hearts. So, Lord, we, we turn the rest of this service over to you, Lord, and ask, Father, you do what you want with this time of response. And I pray, Lord, as we give our offerings and our tithes and we, we give prayer requests and all these things, Lord, that we may be doing it only for your glory. As we sing this song, may we sing it for your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.